Thank you so much, guys. Um, I want you in the chat to put down your marks out of 10 for Tori's Christmas decorations. She gets a solid 11 out of 10 from, from me. Um, the Apostle Paul has this great line in his second letter to the Corinthians where he says, this light momentary affliction, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And I don't know about you, but we are now coming up on eight months and counting of lockdown with no idea when it's going to end. And it certainly does not feel to me like a light and momentary affliction. But this is entirely Paul's point. What he's trying to say is that when you understand the eternal weight of glory that is coming to you and the vast nature of what you have to look forward to, anything that life can throw at you can actually be seen as just, well, it's just light. It's just a momentary affliction. And this is what our series in Revelation has been all about this term. We have called it a certain future. And we have seen how, although we live in a time right now where things are full of uncertainty, we're thinking, when is this lockdown? Is this lockdown ever going to end? When's the vaccine going to come? Are the cinnamon buns that I'm baking going to look good on Instagram? Who cares if they taste good, but will they look good on Instagram? There's uncertainty everywhere. But in the midst of all of this, we can know genuine certainty about our future, that, that scripture tells us there are things coming that we can know are going to happen and not just happen, but they're going to happen forever and for eternity. And that when we start to see that, it starts to shape and change our perspective. We start to see just how glorious the eternal weight of glory is, just how eternal the eternal weight of glory is. And we can actually start to consider all that we're facing now, all the challenges, the difficulties, as light and momentary afflictions along the way to that which we have to look forward to. And so for this last message, as Matt said in our Revelation series, we are going to take our third and final look at the new creation what, uh, and see what this eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison will actually be like. And so in a moment, we're going to jump in mid-passage, um, but just a, a bit of a refresher on what we've seen of the new creation so far. Um, in the first passage that we looked at in at the beginning of chapter 21, um, when, when looking at the new creation, we essentially saw that God is going to be there um, and that he is going to be good and he is going to be fully there uh, in, in the new creation. And then last time that we looked at it, we saw the, the elaborate picture of this, the godly city that we're going to that is going to appear and we saw how that is descriptive of the bride of the church and actually this is talking about us and how we are going to be there and god is going to make us beautiful and whole and harmonious and all of those things and the title of today's message is fulfilled and it's whilst we've seen that god is going to be there we've seen that we're going to be there we are now going to see that we are going to be there together and we're going to see the oneness of our relationship with God in the new creation and see how this is, see the depth and the nature of the way in which we will relate to God and how this gives us a bit of an invitation now um, to how we can live and how we can relate to God. Uh, and also, I want to finish by giving us a few practical steps that we can look to build into our lives so that we can continue to live in some of the truths and the realities that we have unpacked in this series. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 21. We're going to read from uh, verse 22. 
And, you know, scripture is always good. It's always good to, to be kind of soaking in it and to be reflecting on it. But I just want to pay, bring your mind to this before we read it to just be to, to, to really just allow your mind to soak in it as we read it. Um, and so I'll, I'll try and move through it just kind of slowly, just to allow us to enjoy the, the goodness of it. We're continuing the description of the city that we, we began before, uh, this elaborate visionary language that can sometimes be a bit confusing but and very poetic, but we'll unpack it as we go. So Revelation chapter 21, verse 22 should appear on the screen. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honour of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And this final picture of our future with God and what we have to receive, I think one of the things that stands out is just the sheer abundance of God's presence that is going to be there. It's, it's unavoidable that you see the, the brightness and the light that shines out in this passage. Let me read verse 23 again. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. The glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. And then Towards the end of the passage that we read, it says in chapter 22, there is no need of light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. And it's talking here of just a, such a totality of the presence of God is going to be here that the light of God will just just light up the whole place. But almost I think as significant is what it says that there won't be. It says in verse 25, there will be no night. And then in verse 5, towards the end of our passage, night will be no more. That here it's talking of this, the, the constant, unending nature of God's presence. There is never going to be a time in the new creation where the glory of God will stop shining, where the, his presence will no longer be there. That he, there is, It's just an ongoing 
complete, constant nature of God. He's essentially saying in this passage that I'm going nowhere. The constant presence of another. I don't know if you saw in the news just uh, this last week that uh, in at the beginning of November, they got statistics to say that a, a full 8% of people in the UK, which is 4.2 million people, would say that they always or often feel lonely. And this is most pronounced in 16 to 29 year olds, which says to us, if it's happening in the younger generation, then it is only on the rise, this sense of loneliness, the sense of I'm on my own and I don't have someone near me. and I don't have relationship at the moment. And of course, this is all exacerbated in lockdown. And the fa very fact that people are reporting this and reaching out because of it tells us we long to be in a relationship. We long to, to know we are not alone. We long to have company, to have the presence of another with us at all times. And I wonder if this might be your story, actually, that you, that you have felt incredibly alone in this lockdown time, that, um, that, you, that you would put yourself in that 8% maybe of I, I often or always feel alone. Here is a promise from God that in our eternal future, we will never feel alone again. We're not made to be separate and cut off as much as that's our experience at the moment. But there is a time coming where we will no longer be separate, we'll no longer be cut off. It's what it talks about in verse 25, where it says the gates will always be open and that the temple of God, the temple in this city is God himself. Just kind of saying that the only thing you need to get to God is you don't need to go to anywhere else, but you just go to God himself directly all the time. We'll never have this feeling of being alone. And that now he would want us to know that he is with us now, but there is coming a time where he is gonna be so intensely with us that we will never even have a question of a thought of feeling alone ever again. But this passage doesn't just say that he's present, that he's a bit alive and a bit there, but this says God is fully present. The language of light and of brightness and of the sun itself being outshined and outdone by God is saying all of God's glory is gonna be here. He's not talking about giving us a half measure, not about giving us just a little portion of himself, a little slither of his being. Here he is giving us to giving himself to us fully. And that's exactly what is alluded to in verse 21, the very fullness of God's presence. Let me read verse 1 and 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. That here we have a picture of the fullness of God. A picture of all three persons that make up what we call the Trinity, that make up the three, the three persons that make up the one God. We have the water flowing from the throne of God, God the Father, and of the Lamb. God the Son. And we have the river of the water of life. Throughout scripture, water of life is a reference for the person of the Holy Spirit. That this is a kind of 
if you see it, is a reference to God in three persons, as he is always presented to us in scripture, is going to fully be here as the Trinity. God's wholeness and his fullness will be there. He's got nowhere else to be. He's got no other attention, no other, no other creation, no, no other side projects. He will fully be dwelling in this new creation space. And as he dwells there fully, we will be right there too. Verse three, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. That as the very fullness of God is in this place, in all of his glory, brightening up the place with the sheer fullness of his being, we will be drawn right into the centre to behold him, to see him face to face. The book of Revelation is intent on us seeing God. You might remember back from the beginning of the series where we saw verse 1, chapter 1 begins the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is a whole book about helping us to see Jesus and it comes good on that promise. Chapter 1, there's an elaborate description in poetic language of a vision of Jesus. We saw the same in chapter 19 of Jesus riding on the, the white horse. And here that very idea of seeing Jesus, seeing God, reaches its apex, its high point in the flow of the book. But actually, without doubt, not only is it the new creation that is leading up to this point, not only the whole book of Revelation, but here is a moment that the whole of Scripture is leading up to. That we as his people will be invited right in to God. Notice that it's not saying that we will see his glory in its fullness. It's not saying that we will behold the, the great works and the great things that he could do. It's not saying that we will hear the rushing waters of the sound of his voice. It's saying that when we arrive at our destination, we will see his face. The face of God will be ours to gaze upon. It's intimate, it's personal, it's, it's close. That's what we'll be with God. It's God opening himself right up to allow us in, to be known by us. It's God hiding nothing from us that we may see him as he truly is. We all know right now that not being able to see somebody's face hinders true relationship from happening. I've chatted to a number of nurse friends over the last number of months and they will talk of how they had to wear all of their protective equipment as you'd expect and um, do their shifts like that. And, and they'll then go into the break room and not be wearing their equipment, of course, and have conversations with colleagues that they haven't yet met before or seen before. And so that's a bit of an alien thing. And they'll have a conversation with someone and say, hang on a second, 
we have literally just spent a 12 hour shift working together and neither of us had any idea that that was happening and it was you. And just the, the disorienting experience that is that we kind of, we've just spent 12 hours getting to know one another and we don't know one another at all because we couldn't see each other. That fullness of relationship just cannot happen without face-to-face -face contact. But here we see that finally there will be no mask between us and God, there'll be no barrier, that finally there will be nothing that prevents us from having a fullness of relationship with God. This passage takes us to Exodus chapter 33, where God and Moses are on Mount Sinai together. And God says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. And so for us to see God's face, to be able to behold him in such a way is to receive a depth of personal revelation of God, of, of intimacy with God and of relationship with God that previously would have consumed even Moses himself. The one who in that same passage, it says that God related to him as a man spoke with a friend, that they were close together, they knew one another. And yet if, God, if Moses had seen this, he would have been consumed. But yet what we have to look forward to is there is a day coming where we will be able to withstand it. And actually not just to withstand it, but it will give us life. Notice the references in in this passage to life in such uh, close proximity to this. In the last verse of, of chapter 21, we read of the Lamb's book of life. And then the following verse, just straight after that first verse of 22, we hear of the water of life. We then read in the, the, the verse that follows, verse two, we read of the tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. The, 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 it's a picture as we see him face to face of just abundant life springing forth. But as we behold him and as our relationship with God moves into a whole new level, abundant life just springs forward. I love the picture that we get of the tree of life in here of 12 times of fruit, 12 types of fruit yielding each month, just an opulent display of just of of, of abundance of provision of God it's just it's way more fruit that's way more delicious than anything you've ever tasted and way more than you could ever need poured out on our life and what we see here is that abundance of life comes through a deep and deeper relationship with God it can feel absolutely impossible to have an, a deep, abundant and rich life at the moment. I don't think many of us would would be saying, oh, yeah, metaphorically speaking, my life is essentially like t plucking 12 different fruits from a tree every month. That's kind of descriptive of of how my of my current experience and felt felt life. But here we see that the source of true life it comes from deep communion and relationship and being with God. 
This is why Paul, when he was he was in lockdown, he was locked up in his home, stripped of all his freedom, not able to leave. A really similar situation, actually, to what we find ourselves in here. He was able to write to the Philippians and say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's saying that life is found, life itself is found in Christ. That life is, true life is not found in, in freedom to go and have brunch or wherever you want it to, or, or to be able to unimpededly travel across the world, or life is not even found in being able to finally be reunited with loved ones and to be able to hug them. That those things, they, they do deeply enrich our lives and we long for those things, rightly, we long for those things to return, especially brunch. What Paul is saying is that those things, they, they don't give life. They are unable to impart the life that we truly need. That can only come through a personal, intimate relationship with God that is going deeper and deeper. You know, for the last few weeks or so, I have noticed within my own soul uh, a new ache is probably the best way I could describe it. A, a, a kind of an emptiness there that I haven't known before, almost just a feeling of lack. And it's been kind of weird because otherwise I have been perfectly happy and actually have, have not have not enjoyed lockdown, but it's it's not affected me emotionally too much. But I've been just aware of this kind of there's a bit of an emptiness there. I can't really account for and so I basically just filed it in the category of general emotional black hole of lockdown that is just causing weird emotional things to happen but just this morning as I was praying I felt God just give it a real clear name and he's just said that's hunger and just as we would if we were physically hungry, we would go to the fridge, open it up and take a bite out of the block of cheese. He's saying he's been stripping everything else back, taking away general things that we have in life. And he's exposing within me a hunger that can only be met by knowing him, having an intimate relationship with him on my own, going deeper and deeper with him and enjoying more of him and his presence. And I just wonder if you can also identify with this, this ache, this soul ache, this feeling of actually life feels quite empty. And I think it can be quite easy to then ascribe that to, oh, when this thing comes back or I'm able to do this again, I'm able to do that, which is where I was at. But I actually felt God saying, no, I think this is, this is just an increased level of hunger for me that he's using this whole situation to, to draw us near to himself. Remember that, that prophetic picture from last week of the two barges that in the choppy waters that we're going through at the moment are tethered ever closer together. And that being a picture of Jesus is just drawing us together through this tough time, drawing us closer to himself, that we would know him more deeply. I wonder if you can identify with this. He is inviting us in to go deeper for more of him. Because knowing the closeness of the presence of God is absolutely essential if we are to really believe this. If we are really to have a sense of longing to see him face to face on this day. And Moses knew God intimately. 
He knew him as a man speaks to a friend. And yet Moses wanted more. He was saying to God, would you give me more of yourself? Show me more of yourself. He had this hunger to see God's face. And God said, no, no, I can't. It will consume you. The more we know him, the closer we are with him, the more that we are able to believe that this day is coming and the more we are hungry for this day and we think this this sounds the best this does sound like life itself this sounds like what i want my whole life to be directed towards and as we do that our whole perspective starts to to shift and we start to to long for this day see it as an eternal weight of glory and everything else is but a light and momentary affliction if there's one thing that i think comes through in chapters 21 and 22 as we zoom out and see it as a new creation as a whole is that it is a deeply intimate and relational passage that as we see ourselves in the midst here enveloped by the three persons of the trinity father son and holy spirit all around us we're face to face with god it is an intimate setting and the true nature of this setting runs like a thread throughout the whole of this new creation passage. At the beginning of chapter 21, we heard that a, a bride appeared and then it all kind of went quiet. And then last week we picked it up again and we saw a full on description of the radiance of this bride, the wife of the lamb, as we as we said, is, is us. That this scene, this picture, this intimate moment is a wedding where the church us we are joined to the lamb jesus christ himself god in the closest most intimate bond possible and it's it's possibly even hinted at again here in verse four where it says they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads this idea of the groom giving the bride his name and as we see that this is the, uh, 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 as we see him face to face, this is a wedding scene. I think it takes us to just another level of understanding of how we will relate to God in the new creation. Because if there's one thing that the Bible constantly says about marriage in, and, and the, the wedding throughout scripture is that it is the bride and the groom coming together and they form one flesh. We see it in the first wedding in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve come together. The first picture we have of humanity, they are joined together in marriage, one flesh. We hear Jesus then referring to it again in, uh, in his teaching on marriage as he brings a bit of correction. As he teaches about marriage, he says man and woman, they come together as one flesh. And then Paul, Ephesians chapter 5, he also references the same thing and says bride and groom come together in one flesh. And then he goes a little bit further. Listen to this. He says, he says, the two, speaking of marriage, he says, two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And he is talking in the context of it about this day. He's talking about the day where the church and the lamb, Jesus, will finally be joined together. And he's saying they are going to come together and they are going to become one. They will be identified as one being 
and the one will be indistinguishable from the other. Now, I want to be really clear what I'm not saying at this point. I am not saying that we are going to become God. I am not saying that we are going to become Jesus. I don't want any of those kind of emails. But what I am saying and what I think comes so clearly through scripture is that we are going to be drawn into the nature of the triune God, God in his fullness, in a way that we will be inseparable from God, where we will be taken up into the Godhead in a way that we will so completely share in his being and his essence. We see hints of this throughout scripture. Paul talks about how our union with Christ now, but how it will finally and fully, we will be united with Christ on this day. And Peter writes this. He says, he talks of us participating in the divine nature. Participating in the divine nature. And I think this, this is it. This tells us of our union, that we are made not just to be with God in all of his glory, not just to see God in all of his glory, but we are made to participate in God in all of his glory. That we are not made to just be consumers, we're not made to be passive in our relationship with God and to, to simply look to consume him and to receive him. But certainly when we know him in fullness, we are to be active in participating in him and with him. That he doesn't want us on the sidelines. He doesn't want us as spectators watching on, but he wants us right in the centre of the action. He draws us right in to be involved. He wants us to get caught up in the activity of God, the overflowing love of the Trinity as love flows out from Father to Son to Holy Spirit to Son to Father to Holy Spirit. He wants us somehow, he wants to involve us in that, that, that mutual receiving and giving of love that happens only within the very being of God. He wants to draw us right in. It's what C.S. Lewis talks of as the great dance of the Trinity. And we will find ourselves with a role to play. Just as Paul refers to it, it, it truly is to us, it is a profound mystery. It's just impossible for us to try and imagine or think what is that going to be like to be that close with God, to be so involved with God, to have a part to play, to be active, to, to be wanted in that environment, to, to have meaningful contribution in that environment. But he will make it so. He will draw us fully into his heart. And as we find ourselves enveloped in it, as we find ourselves at the very centre of his being, I think the best language that we can find to talk of what is that actually going to be like or feel like is that we'll be home. Because that is exactly what this passage is trying to remind us of. It's trying to remind us of home, of where we began. We have a, a paradise 
of flowing river as clear as crystal that gives out life to all around it in verse 1. We have the tree of life bearing much fruit in verse 2. This is calling our minds back to where we first began, where humanity started, the Garden of Eden. And it's Eden, but it's better. It's home, but it's better. The tree of life here is, is just more than the tree of life that we read about in the Garden of Eden. It, it somehow manages to find itself on both sides of the river of the water of life. It's more abundant than the tree of life that we read about in Eden. It's, it's yielding these 12 fruits every month, 12 fruits, 12 times a year. Just as I said before, a picture of just abundant provision from God. No longer is the, the Eden confined to a small geographic location in the creation, but it is now an expanded city encompassing an impossibly large area for us to try and get our heads around if you take the measurements that we saw in in the previous passage but perhaps most significant verse three no longer will there be anything accursed that eden was the place where the curse on humanity the curse on creation entered into the world but here this redeemed restored city Eden is the place where the curse has finally been removed. The curse has been taken away and this city Eden will never be cursed again. The curse has gone. This is Eden perfected. A bigger, better, truer home with God and in God. The original mandate, the original mission that God gave to Adam and Eve was to cultivate the Garden of Eden, to continue to build their home, to grow it, to expand it until it was in a, it was all encompassing on creation. And of course, they failed in their mandate. But here we have the fulfillment of that mission. And that might make us think that the story is over because the mission has been complete. But this is not the end of the story. This is just the beginning of a new chapter. This creation that we currently live in, it began in a garden with a wedding. The wedding of Adam and Eve. And then from that place, after Adam and Eve were married, from that, the whole narrative of creation came forth. The drama and the adventure unfolded after their wedding day. The story of humanity, which really is the story of God and how he faithfully and relentlessly and unendingly loved his people into salvation, called them his people, continued to go after them, chase after them and draw them into his purposes to draw them right into the middle so that he could use them for his glory. And just as the story of this creation begins with a wedding, the story of new creation also begins with a wedding in a garden. And a wedding is never the end of a story. It is always the beginning of a new narrative. 
I've had the privilege of uh, being asked to speak at various different weddings throughout the years and um, and speak to couples as they uh, have, have just got married. And you'll be pleased to hear that I've never once felt prompted to say in any in any stretch or or description say to a couple oh look you look amazing bride you look so beautiful we're so happy for you what a wonderful day of celebration but this is kind of the end isn't it i mean this is this is it this is the peak you're just sort of you're going to be stuck in this place now forever you're sort of just just the wedding day you're just going to stay here it would be ridiculous if i did because if there's one sense that is collectively felt on a wedding day is that that this is the beginning of something this is a a, a narrative a story is about to unfold that there is a newness and that, that one of the great excitements of a wedding day is to start to dream and think who might these be now that they have been almost recreated as one flesh what will this couple now under one name look like and be like? They will be different to the sum of the two individuals coming together. It's a new beginning. And this, I think, is the great cliffhanger that scripture leaves us on in its description of the new creation that should leave us full of intrigue and anticipation. This is not the end of the drama that we see here. This is, we are not going to be stuck in a place where we are just eternally living out the final chapter in the story or where we're just on an endless hold of the final note of a symphony where it's, yeah, it's great to have reached the end and it feels good and it feels climactic, but everything feels good, but it all just feels a little bit static. No, not at all. As we see a wedding happening in a garden, it should spark our minds back to the first wedding that we saw in a garden and start to think, oh, what, what lies ahead? What, what, what adventure, what intrigue, what, what things might happen in the, the drama that is going to unfold? We will be involved and we know that we are going to be drawn into a whole new adventure, but we don't know what that is. C.S. Lewis, in his final Narnia book, um, The Last Battle, puts it like this. For us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That what we've experienced now is just the, the cover and the title page of the eternal narrative that is going to unfold with God. And what we can be confident of is that each chapter will be better than the other. It goes beyond the scope of our imaginations to even begin to think what might this look like and be like. But it should fill us with anticipation because it's, it's kind of alluded to here in the great story. Verse five, it says they, we will reign forever and ever. We are not just going to be there we will be right at the center of this drama not spectators looking on not passive not consumers in the story but participating in the story active having a a leading role in it as it unfolds and this is only possible 
because of the one who, even in the new creation, will be called the Lamb. The eternally slain one, Jesus Christ. Because he took the initiative to come to us. Because he decided to unite himself sacrificially through taking on an earthly death. This is the final result. This is the joy that was set before him. As he faced the cross, he was thinking of this moment where we will see him face to face, where we will fully and finally be with him. He was thinking about this union that he longs for, that we long for, that we would be eternally united with him in his life as he unites himself to us in death. And chapters 21 to 22, the, the new creation, is really a picture of his joy, of the Lamb's joy, of all that we now have and all that he has made us to be as he has made us one with himself. He's made us his bride. He has wrapped us in his glory and his beauty. And here we see that we will even share in his authority to be the ones reigning in the great story of the new creation and the rest of chapter 22 is is really encouragements and exhortations that Jesus really is returning he says in verse 7 behold I am coming soon verse 12 again behold I am coming soon verse 20 surely I am coming soon Jesus wants to leave us in absolutely no doubt, wants to leave the original readers of this letter, no doubt he is coming. That as we battle through uncertainties, as they battled through uncertainties, he wants us to know there is a certainty coming in the future. A reality that he is bringing with him where we will be with him. And he says, keep going. Don't compromise. And as we bring this series to a close, it is essential that we live in light of this future, that our lives are actually affected and changed by what we know is coming. Because the default place for our minds to be is to think this is all there is, that what we're experiencing and encountering day by day is the, the sum of everything. And if that's how we're thinking and we're living, it will definitely lead to apathy. It will definitely lead to questions like, is God really good? Is following him really worth it? Those are natural questions to think if we think this is all that there is. It doesn't give us any answers to some of the challenges and the bigger questions of life. But Jesus here, he's inviting us into the bigger, fuller, truer timeline. Inviting us to have our perspective completely shifted. To know this really is just a bump along the road, a light and momentary affliction that is leading on to our eternal weight of glory with him. And grasping our future in God and knowing that these things are coming are the is the only way that we can truly navigate the uncertainties, disappointments, apparent inconsistencies that we face on a day-to-day -day basis at the moment. And I've got a bit of news. One preaching series isn't going to do it. And what I mean by that is that we hearing it once is not enough to completely form our minds around this, excuse me, around these things. 
we need to be active in our own lives and intentional about saying, no, I'm going to choose to believe these things. We don't drift into believing these things. We have to take active steps to get a hold of them. And so I want to encourage you. I've got a three stage prayer that I'm going to run through very quickly that I want to encourage you to start to build into your prayer life to get hold of these truths and to continue to live them out even beyond the end of this series. And the three stage prayer goes like this. Number one, there is more than this. We saw earlier in the series that one day this world is going to come to an end. Lockdown is going to come to an end. Our lives here are going to come to an end. And what that means for us and what we have seen is that this that we're going through is not all that there is. And so in this first stage of the prayer, we are able to ask God, will you help me to live for more than just the things of this world? Would you help detach me from the allures of riches or success or, or popularity in this world? Because there is more to live for. Part one, there is more than this. Part two. He is making all things new. We saw at the final judgment that God is, there is going to come a day where evil faces up to the holy God and will be thrown into the lake of fire. And from that place and through that, he will renew creation and it will last for eternity. And so in this second part of the prayer, we're able to thank God and say injustice will one day finally be dealt with that you will bring an answer to all of the evil that we face. We can have hope even when we see rife injustice in creation. And as we're reminded that evil will come to an end and, and renewal is coming, we can ask God then for strength and say, will you give me power to resist that which is evil and power to live faithfully to the lamb? Because there is a day coming. I don't want to follow the path of evil. I want to be found on the side of the lamb. So there is more than this. He's making all things new. And finally, we will be with him, which we've just covered off. One day we will experience exactly what it is that we've made, we're made for. We will have perfection of relationship, fulfillment of relationship. We will participate in the divine nature. And we will begin the great story of new creation joined with him. And so in this final part of the prayer, we can ask him now, would you give me more of your presence? Would you help me to taste something of this final day now so that I believe in this day all the more and so that I long for it all the more? And it completely shifts my perspective on today. We'll put out this prayer on our social media and we'll communicate it in other ways. I would love to encourage you to build that or something like it into your prayer life to get hold of these truths. Do not rely on just having heard a preach series. As helpful as that is, it's just not enough for us to know these things intellectually. We have to take ownership of these truths in our own life and, and own them for ourselves and allow them to form our thinking, to form our hearts so that we live in a place of, I have an eternal weight of glory coming. This is just a light momentary affliction. But for now, we are at a wedding and I want us to celebrate. I want us to rejoice. I want us to thank God for all that he has done. And so we're going to sing a song in just a moment to celebrate, to bring our series to an end. Let me pray and then we'll sing. 
Father, we thank you so much for this. Our mind is boggled by the prospect of relationship with you and the depth to which we will know you and be joined with you. We can't comprehend it, but we say, God, we long for it. We look forward to that day. And I pray now, God, you would be sending your presence and your spirit to each of us to believe it all the more, to long for it and to truly believe this is the fullness of life, that there is going to be nothing that could even come close in this life to knowing that and that it would completely reframe and change our perspective on how we see life today. We thank you so much for revealing the things that we've looked at in this series. We thank you for your truth that we can stand on and we long for the day where we are joined with you again. Amen.